Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 1 is where we are. Jeremiah chapter 1, and I know this is only our second week in here. Uh, in this particular book, but it's, it's quickly becoming one of my favorite books, mostly because it's a book written about a man that preached for 40 years and no one listened. And there's still hope because we're reading about him. And so God obviously used him in a great way. Uh, just as a review, because we're going to be in Jeremiah. Did I say Jeremiah chapter 1? Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we are. Sorry, we were in Jeremiah chapter 1 last week. So Jeremiah chapter 2, just to kind of give you a background of uh, where we are in this particular uh, timing here. We understand last week as we looked in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah was most likely an older teenager, perhaps in his young 20s, when God called him. And we understand that the voice of the Lord came unto Jeremiah and said that from the very beginning of time, actually from the, before the moment that you were ever even formed in your mother's womb, I have chosen you and my sovereignty for you to do the plan that I'm about to deliver you or to, do, to give to you. And so, again, we understand last week that Jeremiah had a really hard time arguing against that because it was already set in stone. I mean, God had it planned for him from the very beginning. And perhaps one of the most encouraging things we see through this whole entire storyline is that God delivering this message to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is saying, listen, it's not going to work because I'm too young. Nobody's going to listen to me. God says, you're going to go where I want you to go. You're going to say what I want you to say, but I want you to rest assured in this, that I will touch your lips and God touches lips and I will put in you my words. And so what we see there is Jeremiah was literally a mouthpiece of what God had to say to the nation of Judah. Now, to kind of give you a background, what was going on here is we understand that the kingdom was split, right? And so after Solomon's reign, Solomon being turned away, his heart being turned away towards pagan uh, worship because of the ladies in which he got himself involved in. And so his heart was split between God and also the pagan world. And so as a result of that, the kingdom was split. And so you had Israel, which is a northern kingdom, and then you had the southern kingdom, which is usually referred to as Judah. This letter, or uh, Jeremiah, was addressing the kingdom of Judah. It was the southern kingdom. Judah um, had its... Uh, it seems in Scripture that Judah had a better time than what Israel did, the northern kingdom, because there were some really bad kings. But Judah also had its fair share of problems as well. And we understand that before Jeremiah, or just kind of at the beginning of Jeremiah's reign, Josiah was the king, the ruler over Judah, and Josiah was a good king. I mean, he, he got rid of the idolatry. He was leading the, the people back to where they ought to be, and that was following God. But things quickly transitioned as Josiah's son came to reign, and it got even worse when Josiah's grandson came to reign after his son. I mean, the people were turning further and further away from God. And we understand that there was a constant cycle that was flooding through the nation of Israel. You read the book of Judges, and you've got this, this group of people that were, that were underneath captivity because they turned their back on God, and, and when the pressure continued to be on them, they said, God, help us, help us, help us. As soon as they were helped, they said, okay, God, I got this. Help us, God. Okay, God, I got this. Help us, God. I over and over and over again. And the same situation was happening here. But as you read in the book of Jeremiah, it came to a point where God said, okay, enough is enough. I'm done with this cycle that you have going on here. You're still my people. But what you have here in Jeremiah chapter 2 is really the launching of Jeremiah's ministry. And what we see here is really the recording of, of his first message that he delivers to the people. And it's God laying the charges against the people. And what we're going to see later on here this, this, this evening is that after God lays these charges, He more or less gives them a bill of divorcement. 
He literally divorces from his own people. And so this is where we find ourselves here in Jeremiah chapter 2. And we're going to work through this passage here and to the best that I can. And I'm going to do uh, the best that I can to not even look at my notes so that we can kind of have a discussion together and we can work through this. And so let's start reading in verse uh, 1 of Jeremiah chapter 2. And we see here in the first three verses, it's kind of a sad story. Because God is recounting the love relationship that he had with Israel uh, many years prior to that. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase, and all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. I want you to imagine the pictures that's going on here. Jeremiah, through the power of God, obviously we know that this is God speaking, it's just Jeremiah is the mouthpiece. God tells the people, I remember those days that we had an intimate relationship. When he uses the term espousals, he's referring to the betrothal period. He says, I remember the days in which we had this, and you can think about that young love uh, uh, relationship when you first meet someone and you fall in love and it's so spectacular and it should be spectacular as you continue to get married, but it's just different, right? I think Tim and Lee, you could probably remember it was probably different when you first started dating versus it is now. Not that it's bad now. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next marriage seminar led by Tim. All right. No, not that it's bad now, but it's just when you first fall in love, it's like this, this infatuation and Let's be honest. It's like things that are annoying now definitely weren't annoying then. Okay, and then things kind of change. And so uh, that's what God is recounting with the nation of Israel. He says, I remember those days where I led you to the promised land and we had this great relationship. And what's sad about it is that it's, it's almost as if God is hurt at what's happened to their relationship. God is hurt. But it's, it's God thinking about those good old days, right? Those days in which, I mean, he says here in verse 3, he says, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. Israel was the platform of the holiness of God. I mean, they were set apart. They were different than all the other nations. There was a reason why they didn't have a king, and all the other nations did. But all of that changed. God says, I remember those days. And then... He continues on in verse 4, and he recounts the defilement of the land. He says, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, and think about the questioning here. He says, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? In essence, God says, What unrighteousness have your fathers found in me, for them to turn their backs on me? What have I done to cause you to turn your back on me? Have I hurt you? Have I been unfair in my treatment towards you? He continues on. He says, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of the pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, where no man dwelt? And I brought you into the plentiful country to eat. 
He's talking about the promised land, the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made thine inheritance an abomination. But here is the saddest verse of all of this is in verse eight. The saddest verse, he said, the priests, the spiritual leaders of the land, those that were in this high position said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after the things that do not profit. Now I know that this passage here is not written to the United States of America. It's written to the nation of Israel. But I do believe, just like the majority of the Old Testament, you can go back and see examples of history of what happened when people turned their backs on God. And if you were to think about it in relationship to the United States of America, look at where we are now. If you were to go back all the way to the history, um, when, when the country was first uh, founded by the, well not founded, but when the pilgrims came over here, they came over here for the primary reason of worshiping with freedom and how they wanted to worship God. How they believed God's word told us to worship, they wanted to have the freedom to do so and not be controlled by the country of England. To be told that you have to worship a God this way. And so as they come over here, the United States of America, you go all the way back to the forefathers, was founded based upon biblical principles. We know that it's not a Christian nation based upon the fact that the majority of the people are Christians, but it was founded upon biblical principles. And look at where it is today. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that churches are not willing to take a stand on biblical issues. They're too busy trying to dwell into the gimmicks and trying to appeal to the masses and trying to grow a kingdom that they fail to preach the word of God. And what it's done is that it has trickled down to the people and therefore now they have a false view of who God truly is and they look at this as just being a, an irrelevant book that doesn't really mean anything. And therefore, they ends up changing their way of thinking. It ends up causing them to vote for candidates that do not follow the word of God. And it goes back to the fact that a lot of churches today are just like the prophets that were here, and they did not ask, where is the Lord? They had no, they had no thoughts of God in the least. They were too busy worshiping Baal and worshiping those false gods. And you could see the hurt and the anger and the frustration that God has with his people. Because I remember those days that we had an intimate relationship. And now, you just defile the land that I gave you. You have no desire to be with me. You're too busy looking at the, the false idols and the false gods that you forgot all about me. And then it gets worse in this message of Jeremiah. Look at verse 9. God pleads for them. He says, Wherefore, I will plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isle of Chittim and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. What he's saying there, if you were to look at the geographical maps, basically he's saying Chittim was way over here, and Kedar was way over here. He says, search all the corners of the land, and search all the corners of the earth, and see if any of those gods there will do anything, or anything at all that I've done for you. See if there's any wrong with me and see if they can bring you any satisfaction of all. God basically says, I plead with you, go do it. Go search. And then he looks at verse 11. Hath the nation changed their gods, which are not yet no gods? But my people have not changed their glory or have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. This is a slap on their face. He's saying, I want you to search 
I want you to see if there's a God that could do anything that I can do, but at the same time, I want you to search and look at all those pagan people. And I want you to ask yourself, have any of those pagan people betrayed their gods? Find someone. Has any of those pagan people betrayed their gods? Have they gone through some tough times like you have? Absolutely. But they're still bowing down and they're still worshiping Baal. If they're bowing down and worshiping a false god, even in the midst of their trials and their tribulations, and they have stayed loyal to their false gods, then why have my own people turned their backs on a God that actually exists, on a God that actually matters? That's what he says in verse 10. There's no nations out there, but my people which have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. That's his plea for them. He's pleading for their faithfulness. But then he lays out the charges beginning in verse 13. He says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsa- Is that my daughter crying? They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and they have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what is he saying here? And really, the the two evils go hand in hand. The first evil is, uh, you tell me, what is the first evil in that verse? They've forsaken. They've forsaken the God, the God of living water. They ditched God, in other words. That was their first evil. They they forsook God. And then the second evil that they did is really a result of the first evil. They began to worship idols. This is when it says here, uh, and they've hewned out broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's in reference to their own man-made gods. Now, let's kind of put this whole thing in context here. This is a matter of faith. He says, you have rejected or forsaken the fountain of living waters. These are waters that we understand that continuously flow, that continuously bring satisfaction. That's the water in which God provides. Okay? They had to accept that in faith. They had to accept faith in the fact that God will always provide for their needs, that God will always bring water continuously to them from a metaphorical standpoint. But rather than accept that in faith, what they decided to do is that it would actually be better for them to come over here and hewn their own cistern, in other words, hewn their own God, so that they can call upon that God in whom they can see whenever they have trials and tribulations. And what God basically says here is, listen, you have forsaken the living waters that will never go dry for broken cisterns, in other words, ones that have cracks in it that will never bring you satisfaction. Those are the two biggest charges that God laid out to the people. You've forsaken God and you've turned to idols. Now we understand in our day and age now, we don't sit down and worship false gods, but we set up idols all the time. As Christians, we set up idols all the time, and it's anything that comes precedence over God. And honestly, it can be a desire for something good, and we desire it so much that we are willing to lose faith in God in providing that for us and trust in ourselves in order to achieve it. And when it doesn't happen, we end up getting mad and upset and therefore responding to other people because we are mad and upset because God did not give us what we wanted. And if I can flesh this out just a little bit, when we desire something so much and it causes us to respond in a sinful way and become angry and upset with God, hear me out, that thing in which we desire actually becomes an idol in our life. Because we're putting that desire for whatever that is, fill in the blank, over our desire to please God. And this was happening here with the people. He's saying in verse 14, is Israel's servant 
I see a born slave. Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the children of Noph and Tahapanes have broken the crown of his head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, and that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by thy way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. What he's doing here is he's recounting the pursuit of the Israelites to find satisfaction in something other than God. When he says here in verse 9, what are you doing? Are you drinking the waters of Sihor? What hast thou done in Assyria? You're too busy trying to get satisfaction and trying to be those other pagan nations that you've forgotten who your very identity was. They forsook God, and things get worse. What we see here in the next section of verses are several metaphors in which God uses to describe the sin of the people of Judah. In verse 20, he says, For of old time have I broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou sayest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and over every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For, thou, for though thou wash thee with an uh, nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. The visual image that he's picturing here is that the Israelites tried so hard to cleanse themselves on the outside. They washed themselves, right? They followed the law. They did all these things to make themselves look good on the outside. That on the inside, they were completely disgusting because they were, their hearts were not right with God. God says, I acknowledge the fact that you tried really hard to wash yourself on the outside. This goes back to the hypocrisy that they were experiencing in this time and age, this day and age. But God says, listen, I see, I see right through that. I see your heart. So that's why when, when people come to church and, you know, um, we have standards, of course, you know, as far as attire and that kind of thing when we stand up here on stage. But when somebody comes to church and they're dressed maybe a little bit differently than what we are, our first concern should not be to get them to wear the certain types of clothes we want them to wear. Our first concern should be to get into their heart and to, and to allow the Word of God to penetrate in their heart and change them from the inside because there are some people that... That I, Listen to youth group, right? There are some teenagers that would dress and do everything on the outside to conform to all the standards, but their heart was completely black. And other teenagers that didn't perhaps know all the rules, they would dress like they didn't, you know, they didn't follow the standards, but their heart was right with God. And God, in essence, is saying, listen, I care about your heart. I don't care about the outward appearance because when your heart is right, it's going to show itself through the outward appearance. But the Jews were too busy trying to change up and clean up their outward appearance and not address their heart. God says, listen, I see right through that. And then he continues on in verses, uh, verse 23. He says, How can I say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know that thou hast done. Thou art a swift and madri, traversing her ways. A wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure and her occasion. Who can turn her away? All that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. What is he saying there? He is literally comparing the pursuit of the Jews for satisfaction and using their body to get whatever they want to a donkey that is in heat. To a donkey that's in heat. 
The donkey is in heat, so therefore he's trying to do what, or she is trying to do whatever she can to fulfill that desire. She doesn't care about anything else. And so what he's saying here, he's comparing the Jews to that. He's saying, listen, you're trying so hard to find satisfaction that you're willing to more or less throw your body around and worship whatever you want to worship to find that satisfaction when your head is not in the right place, your heart is not in the right place. And he continues to build on it. He says in verse 35, Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst, but thou sayest, There is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. And as the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed, they, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. Saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble will they say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble, for according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Wherefore would you plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord, in vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. The point that Jeremiah is making here, if I can explain it this way. You take a stick and you chop up that stick into several different pieces. And you take a portion of those sticks and you throw them in the fire to make your fire in order to cook your food. Then you take another stick and you take that piece of that same stick and you, you carve it out and you form it into something useful like a walking stick or something to build something with. And then they take another piece of that same stick and then they dwindle it all in and they carve it all together and they make it into an idol. And then they worship that idol. The point that, that Jeremiah is making here through the power of God is that this God that you worship is something that you made with your own hands. So why do you think it's going to benefit you in any way? Think about how ridiculous that is. Think about how absurd that is, that you're trying to worship something that you and your own power created, but yet you've rejected the God that created this entire world. You've walked out on Him. And continues on in verse 31. O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? In other words, uh, can a maid forget her jewelry or a bride uh, go to a wedding without her wedding dress? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore... Hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways? Also in the skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. In verse 35, yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou wast named of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him, and thine hands upon thine head. For the Lord hath rejected thy confidence and thou shalt not prosper in them. They're trying so hard to be something that God did not design them to be and try to show themselves as being holy before God. And God says, I'm going to reject it. And the final conclusion with all of this here, look at chapter 3, verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding, is, uh, backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. What's the point that he's making here? 
is that God was through with their sin. God was through with them committing adultery over and over and over again. God designed them. We understand from the marriage, uh, you know, symbol of, of marriage here with Jesus and the church being married to Jesus. Israel was married to God. But they committed adultery over and over and over again by giving their hearts over to idol worship, by giving their hearts over to false gods. And God finally just said, listen, I'm done. And what that shows us is the seriousness that God takes sin. The seriousness, the level of, of, of just, just uh, disgust that God has with sin and is laying all of this out. And we understand that today in Christ, as we talk about on Sunday mornings, we, nothing can ever separate us from God. But this should be an encouragement to us in the fact, as we pray for our nation tonight, that may we never be a church that would be described as the priests in verse 8 where we no longer point people to God. Where we no longer preach the Word of God, where now we are so consumed with trying to gain satisfaction in our own ways, in our own definition of satisfaction, that we end up walking out on God. To kind of close out with an illustration here of, of how we can be reminded, how we can be encouraged by, uh, by all of this, you think about you think about a time in which perhaps you were, so, you were supposed to be doing something and in the midst of you doing something, you became so distracted and you looked up and you realized that you were completely lost. I remember on my way back home uh, from Bob Jones University, I was coming back and I was getting onto the turnpike in Harrisburg, Carlisle actually. Once you get on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I mean, you, you, you're on there for a while. There's hardly any exits that ever show up. Well, I, had, I was hungry. I had just gotten something to eat. And so as I went through the line to get my ticket, it splits. And you better be paying attention at that split because you have 76 East, which takes you towards uh, Harrisburg. And then you have 76 West, which takes you towards Pittsburgh. I needed to go to 76 East. And just as that split uh, was occurring, I had looked down to grab a French fry and I was not paying attention because I looked at something else. And I ended up merging over and I got onto 76 West onto the turnpike. Now there's two really bad things that happen. If I was to get off and turn around, I now have to pay for that fee because every time you get off the turnpike, you have to pay for it. And then you get another ticket and you gotta pay for it again when you go back the other way. I had gotten on there and now the next exit wasn't until 13 miles down the road. I just added 26 miles to my trip, a roughly half hour to my trip, all because I was not paying attention. I was not looking to where I needed to look. And when it comes into our spiritual life, we can cause a lot of heartache when we end up taking our eyes and our focus off of God. When we end up building up idols in our own life, not obviously intentionally, but we end up getting focused on things that really just don't matter. And maybe God doesn't want us to have that answer right now. And we fill ourselves with those things rather than what God truly wants, and we end up getting distracted. And before long, it's not that it's too late, but we're pretty far gone. And we're way down a path that we never needed to be on if we just kept our eyes focused on God. There is encouragement coming. Next week, we're going to look at the repentance aspect in which Jeremiah pleads. But again, we're reminded that he did this for 40 years, and they would not listen to him. And may that, may that be not said of us, not said of the United States as we look towards the future.